the mysterious vigilante is in the news again. A little more than two hours ago, in an 8th Avenue subway underpass, two men were shot. One died on the spot. The other managed to reach the street before he collapsed. He died shortly afterward in the hospital. Both had long criminal records. The vigilante himself may have been wounded. Good evening, Mr. Cursor. Or should I say, Mr. Vigilante. Welcome to Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If a man really wants to protect what's his, he has to do it for himself. Hosted by Arnie. You're cocked, locked, and ready to rock. I'll say. Stuart. Well, he did seem a bit odd. Not only odd, the guy is crazy. It's that simple. And Jacob. I admire you. I'm a real fan. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him. Listener discretion is advised. No judge, no jury, no appeal, and no deals. It's showtime. Today, we're discussing... Death Wish 3, starring Charles Bronson, Deborah Raffin, Ed Lauder, Martin Balsam, directed by Michael Winner. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Play, and this isn't a podcast, it's a war. And this is Stuart. And this is Jacob, and I'm the podcaster, that's why I get to violate your constitutional rights. <laughs> I do feel violated, I gotta say, after Death Wish 2, very violated, but it was a big hit. Canon, it put them on the map. Honestly, they got people that they never could have dreamed before. Thanks to Charles Bronson, big stars like Stallone, Chuck Norris, Travolta, Nick Nolte. Yes, he was a big star in the 80s. They all lined up to work with Canon, and they started a successful, well, I don't know if it was artistically successful. It made money. (laughs) They started a big slate of films and put everything you could imagine into production, including, of course... Death Wish 3, they had to make a sequel, and Bronson was up for doing it. Uh, He only made two movies in between. I did go and watch them. I've been trying to see more of his resume, and he was working with a director that we've covered before, that directed Happy Birthday to Me and Conquest and Battle of the Planet of the Apes, J. Lee Thompson. Yeah, and he had time to do movies in between because this comes out three years after Death Wish 2. I thought they would have rushed this. It was Bronson's choice. He wanted to do other things like 10 to Midnight, which, Arnie, I think you know this movie because you've asked me before. What was that movie about the serial killer that was naked running down the city street? (laughs) I've been waiting to ask you that again. (laughs) (laughs) It's 10 to Midnight, which is basically they wanted to option the Richard Speck killing nurses story. If you remember that from the late 70s, there was a serial killer that preyed on a whole room full of nurses. And they decided to turn that into a whole thing that somehow involved Charles Bronson. It's not very good, but for a Canon Pictures, it's amazing. (laughs) It's amazingly competent and has a sleazy vibe that I think is going to impress you. I was very shocked with the level of nudity, both male and female, in it. 
and it's very violent. The problem really is Bronson. He doesn't seem to fit in the movie. He doesn't seem to get into the vibe. Does he get naked in it? He does not. He does not get into the movie at all. And I'm starting to realize that if I want to appreciate this actor, I need to start earlier. That these later films just do not showcase him in the best light. And then he made one film that wasn't canon. He made The Evil That Men Do. Basically, they fictionalized the Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele, you know, who was hiding out in South America in the late 70s. And they had Bronson as the guy that was going to bring him to justice. So you have Charles Bronson running around a nameless South American country, killing people. Also very lurid. Lurid torture scenes. I mean, both tend to midnight and evil that men do. Shockingly violent. I mean, I think of the 80s, I guess because I think of Spielberg as being relatively safe. But these feel like gritty 70s films that somehow found their way into the 80s. Yeah, I have to go watch 10 Till Midnight right now just to let (laughs) Jacob and listeners understand my memory of this. I was nine years old on a trip with my parents and my father, we didn't get pay cable channels. My father decides to watch this movie that I can't remember much of except, yes, nurses were being killed. I was supposed to be asleep, so I was pretending to sleep, and I kept watching this movie, and it was the first time I'd seen a PP on television. And <laughs> then this naked guy in the streets gets shot. That's my whole memory, and for some reason, I thought Stuart would be able to identify the movie from that, and so once I asked him, like a decade ago, before there was video on demand, what it was, and I'd completely forgotten, but I kid you not, maybe it's because we're watching all these canon films and things, but that movie had been coming to my mind. Maybe there was a subconscious Charles Bronson link, because I didn't remember him being the cop in that, but it was plaguing me recently, and I was going to ask you, hey, that movie with that naked guy who got killed again what was it now i have it on tape it was a modest hit in theaters but a big hit on cable a lot of people discovered it both on vhs which was starting to become very popular in america and on hbo and evil that men do same thing bronson had his fans he didn't do giant box office at this point in his career he needed the death wish franchise he couldn't walk away from it it was still this biggest payday but if he made stuff like this that appealed to his audience they ended up being profitable and i think in both cases They're not good movies, but for a B-movie, they had a certain dignity just by not making Bronson a cartoon killing machine. (laughs) You can't say that for this film. And that's going to change with the movie we're here (laughs) to talk about today. Yeah, I mean, that's very different than what he becomes after this movie. You mentioned canon films. I didn't watch any more Bronson films. I did watch Electric Boogaloo, the wild untold story of canon films. We've reviewed quite a few canon films on Now Playing. He-Man, Superman. Four. Superman 4. Yeah, yeah. Be, be clear on that. <laughs> they would never make Superman. The Captain America movie that had J.D. Salinger's son was kind of an offshoot of canon. I really highly recommend it for anyone who loves just tales of avarice and crazy Hollywood movie making and truly reaching startling successes and then the fall that comes after. Yeah, I've seen it too. I'm even going to say it's going to help you enjoy this movie. It's going to put it in context. You're going to watch this movie and be like, how did we get here? How did this franchise go to this point? (laughs) Nothing that we've seen before would indicate it. I mean, I do think there are three influences. Yes, it's being made by Canon Films. Those guys are crazy. Watch the documentary. You'll understand. Two, Rambo was a huge hit the year before. And it had 80 killings, an R rating, and $150 at the box office. Golan 
wanted to sign Stallone to make canon films, and they ended up making Over the Top together. Rambo <laughs> was his dream. That's what he wanted to make, and he made Over the Top. And then finally, Bernie Getz. Vigilanteism in New York was topical again because of Bernie Getz. Do you remember this name? No. Do you remember the Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start the Fire? Yeah. Yes. Yep. AIDS crack, Bernie Getz. Hypodermics on the shore and China's under martial law. Bernie Getz gets a name call in that because in 1984, around Christmas, he was riding the subway. Middle-aged white guy, nerdy, pulled out an unlicensed gun, shot four black teenagers he claimed was mugging him. Became a big court case about, was he racist? Was he protecting himself? Did he copy the original Death Wish movie? Was he a Bronson fan? All of that was in the national dialogue right before they got working on Death Wish 3. And just for the historical reference, he did end up getting off of the crime, the murders. He was not convicted, but he did serve 250 days in jail for having an unlicensed gun. Yes, as we find out in this movie, guns are not legal in the city of New York, which, I don't know, I'm becoming more and more NRA as I watch these Death Wish films where I think, if having a gun is criminal, only criminals have guns. <laughs> anyway, there was a reason, many reasons, I think, to make Death Wish 3, but did they have to make it like this? I know that Bronson hated this script. There was no book to base it on, and they had several ideas, and this was the one that I think Golan was pushing for. I do know the screenwriter took his name off of it. They use a alias for the actual credited screenwriter. There is no Michael Edmonds. This is really Don Jacoby who wrote Life Force, Invaders from Mars, Arachnophobia, Evolution. All canon films we've reviewed except for Evolution. No, the later films. He made some respectable ones, or at least... Ones that, you know, made money. Blue Thunder, if you remember the Roy Scheider helicopter movie. Did they want Michael Winter coming back? I mean, we talked about camera crews walking off the set last time, but he's back as director. I think Bronson wanted him back to make this respectable. I think that was a big... <laughs> okay, respectable. Big way of being like, I don't trust this material, but I trust this man. And then I'm going to just say that after this movie... Bronson never made another Michael Winner movie again and has said specifically, according to certain sources, not everyone has confirmed this, that he insisted if he was going to make Death Wish 4, it was not going to have Michael Winner. Ah, uh, that means Death Wish 4, no Jimmy Page, because Jimmy Page is back too. <laughs> sort of. We'll talk about it. Yeah, there were some not kind things said about Winner during that documentary on the part of both Bill and Ted's Alex Winter who is one of the gang members here. Playing Hermosa, which which <laughs> seems against type. Yeah, surprising. What an actor. He got the job because he was born in England. I never knew that. This was a London film production, other than some establishing shots. So since he could go to London and didn't have an accent, he got a job. This really was shot in London, because I looked that up, because a lot of this looks like a backlot to me. And I looked it up on IMDb, and it's like New York and London. I'm like, Golden Globus I like have gone on to IMDb and edited this, just to make it look like they went to location. But they actually went to London for this. Okay. Here's the thing. This movie had a budget. I think you can see some of it on screen. It had a $9 million budget, which is like four times bigger than their usual productions. They shot for 12 days in New York. And when you see the New York skyline, you know, it's clear when they're in New York. And then the neighborhood, what you're calling a backlot, was just an outside area of London that they set dressed to 
to look like a New York street. And I, it's semi-credible. I don't know if I, I recognize. I couldn't figure out where in New York they were supposed to be. They kept saying it was the Upper East Side of Manhattan, but then they would point to a map where it was like somewhere far off in the Rockaways. So yeah, I don't know what this was even supposed to be. It's New York as someone that's never been to New York might imagine it. I feel like that's a good description for a lot of this movie. Just <laughs> someone who has no idea about guns or crime or gangs or anything wrote it and filmed it. One piece of trivia, we're reviewing Hellraiser as our gold donation series, and when I was looking at the cast list at the opening credits, I had to pause this because I saw a name, Barbie Wilde. I'm like, it can't be the same Barbie Wilde. She's a British woman. I didn't know it was filmed in London at that time. She's the female Cenobite from Hellbound Hellraiser 2. She's the female punk in this. She never speaks because I've met her in real life. She's now a aged woman and she has a very thick British accent, but she is female punk here, which, yeah, all those Hellraiser movies are the first ones were made in London as well. Well, now I have something to look forward to with Hellraiser 2. This is who you're starstruck by? I, there was a name <laughs> in this that I thought you would definitely know that was much more shocking to me, but let's just get into it. Oh, yeah. Marina Sirtis, we'll talk about her, too. But she has an accent, so this makes sense, kind of, too. Although, as a Mexican? <laughs> know that she doesn't speak. Charles Bronson's vigilante killer, Paul Kersey, is back in the Big Apple, hoping to visit his friend, Charlie, with whom Paul served in Korea. But Paul arrives to his friend's apartment in the projects just in time to watch Charlie die, victim of a gang beating. Hey, it's not a rape this time. Yet. There's a couple. Ah, oh, I know. There were three planned. Oh. We see two? Yes. The Dumb as Rocks cops arrest Paul for Charlie's murder, but police inspector Richard Schreiker, played by Ed Lauder, remembers Paul from his killing spree ten years before. So we've moved up again. And since the police are unable to control the crime in the neighborhood, Schreiker lets Paul go to deal his vigilante justice. Only he reports to Schreiker so the cops can occasionally get credit for a bust. So basically, they're privatizing and outsourcing the police force. Isn't this RoboCop? Mm. <laughs> it's a libertarian dream. I'm not complaining. Paul quickly makes friends with the elderly people in the neighborhood, and his justice makes him the enemy of gang leader Fracker, played by Gavin O'Hurlihy. Paul sets some traps for the thugs by night, and by day he has a couple dates with public attorney Carolyn Davis, played by Deborah Raffin. Seeing this, Fracker's men kill Catherine, unleashing Paul's vengeance. With the machine gun Charlie had kept from his war days, because you know they let you do that, he mows down hordes of thugs, and his actions embolden the neighborhood to bring out their own firearms and defend themselves. And a mop. <laughs> that was impressive. When you don't have a gun, improvise. Clean up the streets. The ensuing riots even bring Shriker, who joins Paul side by side, killing these criminals. Have you gotten the idea this is kind of gonzo murder porn yet? <laughs> They then return to Charlie's apartment where they're confronted by Fracker, who gets the jump on them. But Paul uses a grenade launcher to blow the punk to pieces. Schreiker promises to give Paul a head start as he leaves town to escape authorities, and credits roll. Okay, I'm going to start with a compliment. Bringing it back to New York was the right idea. That was such a character in the first one, and a homecoming where he would have to face and stand trial for things that he did in his past. I thought this was a great way to begin. And then, 
I hear the soundtrack and I know <laughs> there's not going to be many more compliments. Doesn't sound like a whole lot of Led Zeppelin going on here. A lot of synth. <laughs> Sexy sax. A little bit of horn and drum machines, but here's the deal. Jimmy Page did a lot of recording for Death Wish 2, and some of it went unused, but Michael Winner not only directs these movies, he edits them. And during the editing phase of Death Wish 3, he pulled out the old music and said, you know, I'm just going to use this, but I'm going to get a contemporary 80s studio musicians to re-record them. So they are Jimmy Page's actual musical experiments done by, yeah, what sounds like Huey Lewis in the news. Okay, I didn't realize that was even Page's music. When I heard the synth, I knew they'd pulled out some licks from Death Wish 2 in here, but I thought the synth stuff might have been a new, less expensive composer. Yeah, it's definitely tawdry, and I think it's telling that this is the only Death Wish movie that did not have a soundtrack released. Every once in a while, there's a good synth piece of music in here, but it, overall, it's pretty bad. But we'll talk about it later. There's a Death Wish 3 video game. Mm. And they should have just used that, whatever, <laughs> 4-bit MIDI, because it's so much better than anything in this film. Yeah, the soundtrack is, it sets a very bad tone. If I was thinking this was going to be a return to the quiet, pondering, philosophical Death Wish 1, boy, yeah, again, I didn't understand that this was canon films. They don't do that. Maybe I'm biased because it's canon, so I'm just thinking this opening shot. Yeah, I agree, Stuart. It's great to be back in New York, but this just looks like stock footage, and I feel like they actually put Charles Bronson on a bus to get him to the set. Like, <laughs> we're not going to fly you out there. We're not going to give you a limo. Take the bus. Actually, they gave him a Jaguar. Alex Winter was complaining on that Canon Films documentary that there was a Jaguar that would drive Bronson from his trailer to the set which Winter describes as being about three feet. Yeah, I was going to say, that's like no more than 10 feet. <laughs> and he described it more like watching an old man golf than watching somebody act. And I will say my first impression right here as we watch him on the bus is Bronson has aged, especially since that first Death Wish film. We talked about how he got a facelift before the second one. But here they're letting the gray show and everything. I see him on a bus and he just looks kind of old and worn down. And I, having seen this film, I actually watched it twice for this review. I felt like I had to watch it twice to absorb all of it. And watching it twice, I'm still not sure if they're trying to make that a character trait. I don't know if he has character traits. He just kind of walks through like the Terminator. Yeah, he shoots a gun. That's his character. You watched it twice. Why is he going to visit Charlie? This is a new character. I thought Paul never went to Korea. He was a conscientious objector. He stayed, what, in Kentucky or something? He, did, he didn't fight. No, he was a medic there. Oh, he did. He was a medic there. Okay. He was there on the scene, but he didn't pick up a gun is the way that I took it. And so he would have met, maybe he helped Charlie off the battlefield or something like that. But they're pen pals. Charlie wrote him. I don't know how he keeps up because we're going to learn it's been 10 years and this is a character who has gone to Kansas City, Chicago, LA, and every <laughs> other small town that has a car thief or who knows, playing their boombox too loud. He's going to go and just clean up America. And that's what he's been doing. But he says his vigilante days are behind him. You know, you can always keep up with a pen pal, especially if you're a good person of writing saying, here's my new post office box address. But Arnie, 
I feel like you always say his vigilante days are behind him and we disagree with you because <laughs> when he shows up at Charlie's, he pulls a gun out like he has it ready to go. But he tells the cops his days are behind him. Maybe that's a line. But I actually liked that they had some continuity. I mean, Paul, this film says I was a conscientious objector, but I got along with Charlie just fine anyway. I'm surprised that they're even referencing his pacifist past at this point. You just kind of expect him to come out and blow shit up. So after that last film and then this film where we just start with the over the top gang violence and things, and I know it's a canon picture. So I was surprised that they even referenced that past character history. Later on, he's going to reference his dead wife and daughter, too. This should not be called Death Wish 3. I think it's a mistake not just to make it a new series. I know why they do it. These movies make double the money when you put Death Wish on the title than if it were just Bronson as Sidewalk Vigilante. I mean, that doesn't sell the same amount of tickets, particularly at this point in his career. But yeah, he is not looking good here, and this does not feel like a return of the character that we know. And... You weren't on the Rambo retrospective, but to me, this is Rambo all over again. By the time you're in Rambo 3, First Blood is so far away from where you were. See, my my go-to was, this is like going from Friday the 13th, 1, 2, and then Jason X. Just speed it up. It's such a whiplash seeing the Paul from a film, that first Death Wish film, where they were trying to say something to that second one, which was very muddy. I feel like they're trying to replay the same things to this one, where it is just balls out crazy, and he's just blowing everyone up. And it's also strange that this is the same director. Michael Winner had been having problems. I mean, there's a reason why he came back, and it wasn't because he loves this series so much. He had tried to make other things. There was a slasher movie nobody saw. He made a Faye Dunaway swashbuggler called The Wicked Lady, which was basically an excuse to get buxom women beating on each other. That didn't make any money at the box office, go figure. And so I think he had to come crawling back to this. He is not in good form here. I mean, I feel like this is a slapdash production. The tonal shifts, the editing, just poorly made, poor filmmaking. And I would never say that about that first film. Yeah, it starts at the very beginning when we see those bus shots. It's so damn shaky that I was shocked when I found out this had a budget. Yeah, I'm telling you, it looks like stock footage. Yeah, and bad stock footage at that. Like, somebody didn't have the ability to post-process it and smooth it out. And the plot here, yeah, I realize he's the director, not the writer, but there is so much repeated stuff going on that I would look to the director to make sure it doesn't happen. You may not notice on the page that you have the character going to the grocery store three times and getting attacked three times coming home from the grocery store. But that's what happens in this movie. It's really, it doesn't feel like the same thing. It does feel like he's phoning it in. And what I learned from that documentary, he was just a canon go-to player at this point. It was almost like an employee. Michael Winter, copious grocery shopping and rapes. That's what he's known for, I guess. Yeah. And it's Death Wish 3, guys. He wanted to have three rapes, the first of which, when Paul gets hauled into the police, it was scripted that there was going to be man-on-man in the jail cell, that he would be thrown in the slammer, and there it was. Instead, they have a very goofy scene where a guy messed up the toilet, and he kind of throws him against the bars. But the real plan was that these homosexual rapists were going to try to get Charles in the jail cell, and he would take them out. And I think... 
I don't know. You can speculate why they didn't film that, but I will say that Bronson did play ball, and the evil that men can do, he actually did pretend to be bisexual to lure a Nazi back to his room and shoot him. I think he might have been cool with the scene. I think it was Winner. Winner didn't want to film it, and so it was never even shot. What, not enough boobs to show? Like, he only likes female rape? Yeah, I, I will say that one of the rapes in this movie is his girlfriend. So, yes, I do think that he has an active role on who he wants to see sexually assaulted, and he wasn't into it. So, instead, we have a very goofy introduction for our main villain. Yeah, and you mentioned the head going through the bars. That's the first of many moments where I'm like... That's not how that works. I don't know why the head is bleeding. I don't understand how the head could get back through the bars, even if it went the first way. I'm realizing we're in some kind of strange cartoon here. This is a very strange universe. This is when I watch something and it's either made for children or it's made by people that don't know what real life is. Like watching these gangs where, where they're like doing face paint on their heads. And when we get to Fracker, he's got like the reverse mohawk with the paint. He looks like a cancer victim with that. He looks like fake Jake Busey to me. Like, I feel like this was really a role for Jake Busey. I kept going to our gang. You remember, like, Alfalfa had that one <laughs> yes. hair that stuck up? Like, to make it bad, he was like, I'm going to have a reverse mohawk. And it just, I don't know, it doesn't look right. I know that the 80s was just when that punk scene was starting to happen. And I found these characters very intimidating. If I had seen this movie right when it came out, I'd be like, oh, this is, this would be frightening to a 12-year-old. Punks did scare you as a child, though, Stuart. Like, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the point. These seem cartoonish to me. I, I think about that first Death Wish. I'm, okay, Jeff Goldblum with the Jughead crown. It's a little weird, but those seem like more or less like real criminals just out on the street mugging people. The second one, uh, Larry Fishburne with his glasses and his boombox. Okay, still, it feels 80s. Okay, but here it just it does feel cartoonish. And it's platinum headphones time for Gavin O'Hurley. <laughs> yeah. He was the jerky guy who was hitting on Annette O'Toole in Superman 3. IMDB tells me he was in Never Say Never Again, though I don't remember him. Yeah, he gets killed. I do remember that. And Willow. Yes. And what I had to laugh is I've seen him on Happy Days where he played Richie Cunningham's older brother that mysteriously disappeared after a season. Not only that, but Twin Peaks. He was the evil Mountie that tried to get Agent Cooper sold up the river. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we've seen him a lot. And this may be his biggest role. He is going to be the head villain. And it, I guess, works for the tone that they're going for here, but isn't very scary. I feel like he makes a pronouncement in this jail cell. Next time I see you, I'm going to get you. And then for the next hour, he keeps bumping into Bronson and turning <laughs> the other way and being like, you go get him. You know, he'd send minions. But this guy is all bark. He stalks him over the phone. Yeah, prank calling someone is not getting them. I got to say, this guy is lame from the haircut, the makeup, all of it. Honestly, this movie, I was getting this feeling and it, it really explodes at the end. But, like, this is a police academy view of street gangs with the face paint like Indians and some of the crazy violence. I just remember the end of Police Academy, the original one, ending in a street riot. I got a real Police Academy vibe off this. This guy, I didn't know if he actually even remembered Paul Kersey when he sees him on the street. Like, was this just a moment in a jail cell, but when he sees him, that Paul has followed him back to his hood, he doesn't recognize this guy in the suit who's there with the 
really creepy mustache. I, I gotta say, it also bothered me later on when Paul has to kiss that woman because his mustache is really long. I'm like, that's kind of itch. It's always been like that, but he looks worse here, Charles Bronson. That facelift has gone away. Yeah, it's 64 years old. You you don't play the character the same way. But yes, there is a nerdy defense lawyer, Catherine Davis, is skulking about saying, why was this man thrown in jail with his rights violated? Well, it's because Inspector Schreiker, I keep wanting to say Stryker, but I guess that's airplane. <laughs> or X-Men. Yeah, Schreiker is going to punish this guy. I feel like there's a real waffle in this character. On one hand, I think he'd like to lock... Paul Kersey up for the rest of his life for what he did 10 years ago, but at the same time he realizes he's surrounded by men he finds incompetent, or at least incapable of stopping crime, and figures, well, if this guy is going to get the job done, maybe we can pay him with a slush fund or something. Does he not realize Charles Bronson's 64? Because he keeps calling him dude. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird characterization. And I've seen this actor in other things where he is not silly. So I guess he just embraced the vibe that was on set here. This guy is always that guy. He has such a familiar face. And when I looked him up, I've seen him in a million things. Probably my go-tos would be we reviewed him in Cujo, where he was the owner of Cujo who got killed. And I couldn't possibly let this show go by without saying he was also one of the baddies in Real Genius. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Real Genius. Was he the one that got the braces that talked to him? Oh, no, no. He was one of the military guys behind the whole laser plot. Okay. I don't remember the movie well <laughs> enough. But anyway, the point is, you feel like he might have signed on thinking he was making Death Wish and then found out that, yeah, he was in Police Academy. Did he read the script? Because he says dude a lot. He's stepping on cockroaches throughout. I mean, there's even at one point, I don't know if you guys noticed this, there is a sign at the police station, a wanted sign yes. for horses. <laughs> do they need horses to patrol like the city? I know they do that on horseback. Or are there criminal horses in this movie? The set design of this film is crazy to me. And again, I watched this once and then I learned a lot about the making of and the fact that it was in London and I watched it again and things made more sense that were bothering me the first time. Like the outside... It's not the 4th of July, but there's just red, white, and blue streamers to scream it's America. There's, like, almost handmade signs of the police force about corruption, call this line, and things like that. It's what somebody who hasn't been to America pictures America from watching Hill Street Blues. Do they think we're cowboys, though, and that we arrest horses? I am so confused by that sign. Yeah, I so much to be confused about. But yes, I did notice that. It was one of the many, huh, moments, but it gets eclipsed. I mean, I, I soon forget because, I don't know, I guess it's an interesting hook, as unbelievable as it is, that, that they're going to outsource solving the problem to the vigilante. That New York's response is, okay, you win, you've been gone 10 years, and crime has just kept increasing. You are the only man that can bring it down i don't even know if that's an interesting conceit i like how quickly it moves the plot along like you know what kind of movie this is when the chief of the police is going to go to your vigilante and just go yeah just kill people for us because you could do it my guys are dummies they can't and just give us some credit every once in a while like th there's not going to be any contemplation about whether this is the moral thing to do it is not that kind of movie it is let's get to the killing maybe because i knew this actor ed lauder but I expected this to be even more. I expected him to be some kind of corrupt cop 
that maybe he was running a rival gang or something, and so he wanted this one gang weakened. But I honestly, the first time I saw this, just didn't think Fracker had the presence to be the big bad of the film, and that we would end with Schreiker versus Paul. Because here, Schreiker is doing nothing but a power play. I'm going to violate your constitutional rights. I'm going to keep you in a jail cell. I'm not going to let you see a lawyer. The fact that he's establishing dominance and then I'm going to let you go out and kill, but you report to me and you let me know what's going on. I thought for sure this would end with those two having a showdown. And in a better written movie, it might. Not to mention, we don't really hate fracker yeah he kind of glowers in a jail cell but the ones we want to see brought to justice were the ones that beat up and killed charlie right it's those three punks the giggler who looks a whole lot like shabadoo ozone from breakin i don't know if you remember that another <laughs> yes. fine canon film is it the same actor no it is not and then yeah alex winner is hermosa and then angel is the latin man that they're all palling around those are the ones that i think should be the big bad or they should have made fracker there beating up Charlie. But Fragger was apparently at, what, karate class? Is he wearing, like, I thought he was going to be a ninja. Again, I knew that Canon did some ninja films. Uh, they popularized ninja films in America. American Ninja, maybe you've heard of it? Mm. Yes. He's wearing, like, a black karate gi when he's in prison. I thought for sure with that reverse mohawk, it was going to go Karate Kid 3, and he was, like, the evil karate guy. Uh, I would have loved Charles Bronson doing a mac and cheese monologue like Karate Kid 3. <laughs> The thing with Fracker, though, is that he has this perfect record. Like, they've never been able to pin anything on him. And this actor, <laughs> this character they've written just doesn't seem like the genius type to avoid any kind of getting his hands dirty and getting caught. Not to mention that we meet him in jail. They're like, he has a clean record. I'm like, we met him in the jail. How is that possible that he is so above the law? But again... This movie has got afflictions of canon thinking. I mean, Minahem Golan, his films are replete with illogical, you know, he goes with the wind and do this, do that, whatever, you know, it'll be great. And what I learned in that documentary is Golan was specifically big on editing. Cut it down, cut it down. I was surprised, we'll get to it in a little bit, but I was surprised there wasn't like a 10 minute rape in this film. The fact that things move make me think that Golan was in the editing room and perhaps overwrote a lot of winners directorial decisions which is why we get a film that does feel pretty efficient here in the beginning in getting him into jail out of jail we know who the bad guys are we know who the good guys are yeah I'm appreciating this film for how over the top it is and how much it's moving I, I feel like this film is a pretty quick watch even though it's the same length more or less as, as the other two death wishes we've reviewed but this thing just moves yeah and editing is a part of that they did film a longer rape we'll talk about it when we get there what got cut out of it i mean it is michael winner behind the director's camera but it was deemed x-rated they wanted to get an r-rated they wanted this they wanted to get this in american theaters and have a big rambo size hit so emphasize the violence downplay the sexual assault i think was the mandate here charles bronson though you're right this age thing it's really clear when he gets to the neighborhood and is trying to clean up he can't run anymore. And that's, they write that as the character, but that was the actor on set. He literally told the director, I can't do this. And Michael Winter said, what do you want me to do? Get you a hot dog stand and you food poison them? Run. <laughs> 
I actually thought he ran pretty well at one scene. I'm like, I knew a lot of the running was obviously a stunt double. I guess the, I have Blade 3 syndrome. If I can't see the actor's face, I'm always thinking they're not on set. But there's one scene where he runs down a parking ramp. I'm like, he moves pretty good for that age. Here's the thing with this film. We talked about why is there this focus on the gang instead of the three that got Charlie at the beginning. This is really about a neighborhood and it's about old people in the neighborhood i'm getting a batteries not included vibe from this just a much more violent version where the gang is tormenting the old people who are too poor to move out like everyone that paul hangs out with where he's going to meet bennett another vet it's all old people in this film that is the crazy thing that this is a revenge flick with the elderly yeah i think this is a thing for canon films you know they at the same time made delta force which was about a plane that got hijacked by terrorists and yeah, all of the people on that plane were elderly Jewish people. And I just think, you know, they're Israeli filmmakers. They wanted to have that voice here in this apartment complex. They really embrace Kersey. They have no problem with him being a killer. He's invited to dinner, steps out to go shoot some carjackers. <laughs> they're like, okay, sit down. We'll finish the stuffed cabbage. They're completely fine with his ethics. There is no debate about we need a vigilante. Truthfully, this movie is like, 20 years too early and 10 years too old, but I felt like I was watching a prequel to Red, you know, the Bruce Willis film with all the old spies, because everybody here, I want to know why these well-dressed, well-mannered people are still living in the projects here. I understand they even have that conversation, because when Charlie's dead... Paul is going to befriend Bennett. And Bennett tells him he missed the funeral. How long was he in jail? <laughs> I thought it was just for like a day. No, I'm taking it he was in there for four or five days. <laughs> that really is a violation of your constitutional rights then. I mean, it takes a long time to get in that many fights. I mean, Fracker wasn't even in there when he first went into the cell, I don't think. He got arrested and outed in the time Paul was there. But Bennett is going to say... Oh, I have nowhere to go. My shop is here. His shop that where he fixes like radios for taxis. <laughs> the meter. Yeah, so they can charge you. Yeah, as you move along. That is hysterical. That yeah, and then they burn it down later in the film. It is such a niche market. At first I thought it was ridiculous, and then I thought it was genius. He's probably the only one, and there's so many cabs in New York, he probably could move out of the projects. But <laughs> that there's these stark contrast that the only people we see are these well-mannered elderly and these completely Mad Maxian thugs on the street. Yeah, I, again, it's it's the kind of extremes that Canon Film traffics in. They always have these old, feeble people. They all have, yeah, common jobs and feel like they're too old to do anything about what's gone wrong in the neighborhood. They need a Charles Bronson. So you have... You know, by contrast, these ridiculous villains. It's a cartoon. It's a cartoon showdown. Do you think John Hughes saw this and was inspired for Home Alone? Because we'll see Paul, like, make some crazy booby traps. A board with nails on it that he puts under a window. And then another spring-loaded board that's, like, going to take a dude's teeth out. This thing is crazy, like, where they go with it. This is completely minor a point. But yes, he creates this board. If they come in the Kaprov's first floor apartment, they're going to get hit with this board when they open the window, right? And they come in and the board is at a full 90 degrees straight up. And they peel it back and there's two teeth <laughs> on it. How did those teeth stay there? Wouldn't gravity have pulled those teeth down? I don't even know how the teeth would have got lodged in there in the first place unless they were sticking straight out of the guy's mouth. <laughs> 
and we see Tulio later, and he's not missing his front teeth. So, uh, you know, again, canon films. But I suppose I need to clarify, there is one other couple there that completely does not match any of the stereotypes we're seeing. There's a Hispanic couple of Rodriguez and Maria. Yeah. And Maria. Yeah. And hold on to your hats. <laughs> Trekkers, because you've never seen Diana Troy looking like this. Yeah, Marina Sirtis, a London female who would be about 30 at this time, with so much spray tanner that they're going to call her Hispanic. And she does speak, and she, like, is trying to do a Spanish accent. She doesn't have too many words. but No, she has one line. Yeah, it's... So strange. She's almost unrecognizable to me in this film with that much spray tanner on. But it turned out I'd seen some frames of this film as a high school age trekker. A friend of mine did show me some celebrity skin issues that did have any nude scene anyone in Trek had ever done. So I'd seen some stills from Death Wish 3. Yeah, wow. I mean, we did not need to go back to this. But yes, the trope is anytime you go to the grocery store, you're going to be mugged, attacked. I mean, in comical fashion, it's just ridiculous. I think we see her twice coming in with grocery, but three times. First, she's in the parking lot, I presume coming home from the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Later, she decided to walk. Of course, that's going to get her attacked. And the third time, she gets snatched in the parking lot. I guess like this problem is solved once Amazon starts food delivery. <laughs> but terrible, <laughs> terrible that they're living in an environment where literally you step out your house and the attack is imminent. And yes, Maria is our second rape because this is Death with Three. We must have a gratuitous scene where I think she has her blouse torn twice. Like it's ripped in the parking lot. Then they drag her back and can rip it open again. I'm like, ay, ay, ay. They rip it open and then they rip it off. This one, maybe because they cut it all out, it just doesn't have the impact, the gross, icky feeling impact, I'm saying, that that last film did where it's just like, I don't even want to watch this one. Again, this is a very fast-paced, fleeting movie and they don't linger on it as long. Thank goodness. Yeah, I agree. That would have perverted what feels like otherwise a violent cartoon, but not a perverted cartoon. Winner filmed it. Apparently, the actor, the giggler, even improvised that he twisted her arm and broke it. And everyone was really shocked by it on set. He made it look really convincing, even did the sound effect. And everyone was like, oh my God, did you break Marina Sirtis' arm? But no. And you'll find out later that's why she actually dies. She survives the attack. And then they take her to the hospital, phone the apartment and say, don't worry, she's fine. Wait, no, no, no. She's raped, but she just has a broken arm. We see Rodriguez is like, I can't believe she was raped. But ah, it's just a broken arm. Like Paul's like, let's go visit her. It's just a broken arm. Yeah, well, to Paul, this is what everyone around him experiences. At this point, if you know Paul Kersey, you are going to have some horrible injury inflicted upon you, usually within minutes. And Marina Sirtis and Alex Winter both had some words for the director about this scene. Alex Winter called the director a pathological, brutal, strange, sadistic, insecure, egotistical person who uses his job as a director to abuse people. Apparently in the scene where she's raped, Winner made Marina Sirtis lay down and in between takes, she was not allowed to cover up. She was not allowed to move. It was sub-freezing temperatures and Winner's yelling, you have to be naked so we can light you. And the director of photography 
finally gets up and puts a coat over this poor freezing girl and Winter just goes off on the DP the whole time. So the fact that this is mercifully shortly edited, again, I'm going to credit without any factual knowledge, but just intuition and what I've heard from behind the scenes. I'm going to credit that all to Golan to, yes, keeping it cartoonish rape violence as cartoonish as it can be versus a protracted ugly scene like we had in part two yes i agree Uh, that is definitely the way that i need this to play i don't tell me that we need to yeah exploit and linger the way that we did in those previous movies i hate to say it but i think it's winner's predilection later we're going to have another woman attacked for no reason on a stairwell that was his girlfriend at the time and again apparently she ended up suing him and saying that he did terrible things to her off the set as well my question is, moving on, because, that, yes, unpleasant stuff from this director when it comes to that subject. Can a broken arm dislodge a clot that goes to your heart? Is this the thing? Well, I'm now Googling, and just so you know, the Google <laughs> things, can you die from a broken heart is first, neck, then nose, <laughs> then bone, then back. Arm is not one of those things. Yes, there are many ways to die from a broken bone. So, yes. I don't know. When you break your arm falling off your bicycle, you are not at risk. They're not going to say, oh, you're fine. And then when you get there, oh, Bobby has perished. He has expired. But yeah, this is like every other scene in this. These are people that don't know medical science. And so they just kind of make it up as they go along. And it doesn't matter. The point is that Rodriguez is going to be so heartbroken. He's going to end up being a partner to... Paul Kersey, which is kind of fun. I actually think that would have been something to really play up that because this lone gunman thing has really been played out, it would be nice to have him working side by side. Bennett is there to kind of give him information about who the gang is, but they don't really have a camaraderie the way that he and Rodriguez will later. And Rodriguez is such a poor actor, though. His facial reactions when he finds out his wife is dead is truly Razzie-worthy. I mean, I was laughing out loud. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah. And I wish he felt like more of a partner in it, but he mostly shows up when convenient, but he doesn't do much talking, maybe because he is such a bad actor. He's going to get the glorious job of carrying a box for Paul later on. I mean... Well, around this time, Inspector Schreiker shows up again. He's like, okay, you got to give us something. You got to let us do a bust. And Paul's just like, nope, sorry, can't help you. Don't have anything for you. And you think this is going to be a moment of tension, but no, Schreiker's just going to go away and it's it will come up again later, but it never builds any like dramatic tension. I, I just feel like that's how this film is. It's, it's how to get to the next gunfight this is part of the reason i watched it twice is this exact scene because the next scene are two cops visiting the elderly couple saying you have a gun you were waving it around we need your gun i'm like did i miss paul giving up the old people because he didn't want to give up the gang members is that the bust no all of a sudden people have guns that they're hiding and the cops i guess i guess this is how they're getting back at paul for not giving him someone to arrest as they're harassing the tenants just like the gang is it's not in the movie again i bet something was filmed and i bet Golan is like, it's dialogue, cut it. Yeah, you might be right about that. Or just that we would understand it because it was a passing thought in his head. If, if If someone character says it, we'll understand it. Basically, the way that they're portraying the police is that they are just as bad as these gang members and they're willy-nilly. I mean, they honestly, they sound a lot like Golan and Globus, the way that they're sometimes friends to Paul and then other times locking him up. What I find funny is when that couple 
they get their gun taken away, they are promptly, immediately robbed by people. <laughs> like, they knew the cops took their gun, and they come in and rob them. Yeah, Fraker has gone back and formed his gang. There was some kind of coup sort of happening where one guy was trying to take over. He stabs him in the neck. Everyone's fine. And they even introduced the idea that there's a rival gang, and, and we have this Cuban that takes an axe to him. That doesn't really play out later, except those might be be the people that they call in when there's like a temporary services for like hell's angels. If you need extra people (laughs) for the gang war, call this phone number. But lots of things are introduced about the gangs. (laughs) I don't feel like there's anything to know the important partner. If there is a partner for Charles Bronson in this movie and God knows he needs it because I think he's giving his career worst performance here. I know that he was suffering He doesn't like to leave America. He was in London, apparently got very sick. He got a cold. And his wife, Jill Ireland, had been diagnosed with breast cancer and was dying and was just not in a good mood. I don't think he was enjoying the shoot. But yeah, give him a partner. Give him Wildy, a a 475 Magnum, which is so much tougher than Dirty Harry's 44 Magnum. (laughs) This is actually Bronson's personal handgun. He had a 475 Magnum in real life, and all the facts about this gun, I researched it, because what I really want to know about the gun is how many bullets it could hold in the clip, because it shoots 13 times in a row (laughs) without cutting. But while looking that up, I learned so much about this gun that we learn is actually true, and Magnum actually said sales of this specific gun always spiked right after a cable showing or a network TV showing of Death Wish 3. Yeah, take that, Clint Eastwood. They did get me here because Paul's like, oh, Wildy's coming. And they're like, when's he getting here? And Paul does rent a P.O. box so you can have this gun mailed to him from who knows who. But maybe someone in Kansas City, maybe someone in Chicago where he's done other killings. But yeah, it is a gun that he pulls out. And they did have the inventor... Will D. J. Moore was on set as technical advisor. Apparently, it is like a miniature elephant gun. Mm-hmm. It is actually has that capability of taking out an elephant. It makes a real mess. It's like having a thousand pound bullet dropped on you from the top of a skyscraper is what it does. It leaves a bigger hole coming out of you on the other end than going in. So it is actually tougher than Dirty Harry's gun. There is one thing I'm going to complain about with this film. Because again, I'm having a fun time thus far. It's brisk. It's moving. It's absurd. It's a cartoon. The violence. I'm expecting with an elephant gun, we are going to get some good headshots. That's really lacking here. We don't even get anything as cool as that being shot through the boombox scene we did in the last film. Yeah, we're supposed to hate the giggler, and I want him to be a character. He giggles when he grabs purses. That's the one thing we know, and we've seen a few <laughs> scenes where we just know Charles Bronson can't catch him. This kid is young and fast and Charles Bronson is old and slow but because he has Wildy and because he wants to go out for ice cream this is what I remembered from seeing this movie one time on cable was like I think that he goes and gets ice cream and kills people and sure enough it's this I think what may be the most memorable kill scene in the movie I couldn't believe A that He went out for ice cream again and got mugged again (laughs) going for ice cream. I do feel like that was a joke. Yeah, referencing that last film with the ice cream. But second, the way he's carrying that Nikon camera, nobody with a valuable camera would carry it that way. (laughs) I thought they were going back to the first one and that was going to be like a weapon of choice, like the coins in the sock that he was going to just use it like a bolo or something like that. And no, it's actually just much like flashing the cash in the first movie, a way to make him an easy target. His aim is back. We complained in the last film he didn't have 
the perfect aim that he exhibited in the very first one. He's taking out just about everybody with a single gunshot. Even before Wildy shows up, he is good even with the smaller gun that he was carrying. Maybe it took him more shots. They just edit all those attempts out to make this movie move along. Yeah, does this escalate things? I think we're supposed to think because they killed the Giggler, this makes the gang even more mad. They had no business doing that, Stuart. I don't know. I feel like they would be doing this anyway. But basically, Fracker's answer is to give speed or angel dust to this Cuban guy and (laughs) and be like, you go kill him. I think that's hilarious. Yeah, let's give someone drugs that's going to make them, I guess, super scared. Again, if if this is playing to a suburban, sheltered audience, yeah, someone took some coke and that made them super strong and scary and we got to shoot them. PCP, again, that was the what they taught me in health class. If you take PCP and they shoot you, you won't even know it. They could shoot you 16 times and you'll still go after them. And it just... Stuck with me. And you're right. I saw this at that impressionable age. I hadn't ever been to New York. It can warp you. I know it sounds funny now. We look at this movie and it looks cartoonish, but I really thought that even though a lot of this was absurd, that this was what life in New York was like. Yeah. I mean, even look at a film like Taxi Driver, which is a more serious look at this kind of crime that it did exist i think it was worse in the 70s than the 80s and it definitely got cleaned up in the 90s and so on giuliani is credited with that yes yeah disney but while it looks comical it's portrayed comical there was a lot of real fear there as well but here i mean it's just a bad neighborhood it's not even the city we're like stuck in four city blocks that's the cops just cannot control and i suppose that does exist i think about like cabrini green in chicago and things like that there are neighborhoods that are just extraordinarily violent and you can't control them but i wish there was a bit more social commentary here even if it's a social commentary i didn't agree with beyond just yeah you killed him again yeah you killed the next one again well, come on. You don't think it's social commentary? I mean, Paul's going to actually go on a date in this film, which is weird. And now I'm worried about Catherine because she's probably going to get raped is what I'm thinking. But even the public defender is like, we got to fight back. There's your social commentary. Even the hippie liberal public defenders want to stop this crime. That was a surprise because the last movie had someone that looked just Jill Ireland, I think is identical to this woman they look like the same woman but yeah the whole thing was that paul had to hide his vigilante habits from his love because she could never accept it that was better tension than the idea that this public defender hates all the criminals that she gets off and really wants them shot and also apparently makes some good chicken yeah that's all she knows how to cook (laughs) is chicken she has him over twice sleeps with him the second time because she's leaving she can't deal with it yeah i don't even understand i guess she just really wants wanted to get laid there's a weird conversation earlier where she's like i have a sister i hate her i mean don't talk to her and then the very next scene is i'm gonna go visit my sister yeah it's things have gotten that bad is i think the way we're taking it well it feels like yeah she's moving out of the city to go live with her sisters how i took it well she read the script and on the next page she's going to get killed by the evil gang she knows that that's coming i used to claim james bond had a magic penis that would turn any woman (laughs) onto his side i now think Paul Kiersey has a evil penis that marks any woman who sleeps with him for death or rape. Yeah. 
But it's hilarious. Like, they're driving through that bad part of town, and Paul's like, oh, let me go check my mail real quick. Let me go check the P.O. box. Runs in, and that's when the gang attacks Catherine in the car. And, oh, boy, I never want to get in a car accident with, with a cannon car. <laughs> I Another myth from childhood. I believed that if two cars hit one another, they would explode in a giant fireball. It was perpetrated <laughs> on television, too. I mean, Dukes of Hazard and all those things. Cars would go off cliffs. They'd always use stock footage of a car going off a cliff and blowing up. But here, yes, a car with obviously nobody in it. They write it that they punch her and knock her out, and she just happens to be laying across the bench seat so that you don't see her. But really, one empty car collides with a second empty car, and then they both go boom. Big, big boom. But does this escalate? Again, I'm getting no sense that what happens in one scene makes the next scene more dramatic. It feels like chaos all the time. It feels like Paul cares so little for this woman. He's not fighting for her death and trying to get vengeance for the rest of the movie. I don't think that's why he orders the rocket launcher. I think if you're looking for drama, this is the wrong film. This is not going to even try to attempt with any of the pathos that that first Death Wish had. I mean, how does the Cuban get defeated? Like, they built this guy up, he's doing speed, and he's going to hunt Paul. He just gets thrown off the top of a building. It's not that dramatic. Yeah, Paul drops his gun. Yeah, there's so yes. many mannequin deaths in this movie. I just, it's amazing <laughs> how bad they look when they're thrown off and they just keep doing it. It's kind of great that they just think that we'll accept it as the real thing falling off the roof. Yeah, and the way it lands, it lands like it's almost, like, all I could think of is Deadpool. It's going to do a superhero landing because it lands in, like, this triangle, and they just left the shot there, too, so you could see how it just lands in place. But I'm going to try to explain to you guys how I guess I'm projecting onto Paul a character motivation because there's nothing written and Bronson isn't giving me anything. And so I take his performance to mean he's unflappable. No matter what happens, he's seen it all, he's been a vigilante for 10 years, and he just is going to roll with it. He's a professional, he knows what he's doing, he knows it needs to be done, he doesn't take enjoyment out of it, nor does he dislike it. Every so often I think he smiles, so maybe he takes a little enjoyment out of it, but he's just a force of nature. He's not going to change. If you're looking for drama, drama is characters who change. He is going to be the force of nature that will inflict change on other characters. I also, just because this looks like a terrible experience for him, just think he's not trying. The actor, Bronson, just does not care to give a performance, and the movie suffers for that. I felt like that was a problem also with Death Wish 2, but here, again, I think this is the worst we've seen him. Yeah, he's completely checked out. Yeah, I don't think his character arc, again, it was kind of there for the first one, totally missing, I think, for the second one. So I'm going with this cartoon. I'm not looking to get a whole lot from Bronson's performance here. Just how fast can he pull that trigger? And, and the fact that I, I like a lot of these surrounding characters, again, Bennett, the fact that he's hiding two huge, what, 35 caliber machine guns in his armoire from World War II with ammo that's still good. Yeah, he's in the war. They let you take that stuff home. It's no problem. <laughs> Just keep it in the the. the cupboard. I wonder if he's got some of those like stolen uh, paintings that like the N Nazis stole and supposedly some of the Americans like brought back, smuggled back. Well, this was Korean War, not World War II's. No, he's a World War II vet, Bennett. Okay, but they were Charlie's guns yeah. that he gave to Bennett because Bennett was afraid Charlie was going to use them. And so he took them for safekeeping and then decided to try to use one himself. 
but either he didn't know how or he chose the broken one because he gets thrown <laughs> off of a fire escape, but he strangely doesn't die. I thought Bennett was dead for sure when, yeah, he pulls that gun out to shoot the gang. I, I, I just love, like again, the staging here. They're like, he's got a gun, run away. It's not working, get him. And they all just run up that fire <laughs> escape and like throw him off. And yeah, I thought he was dead for sure. All of that incidental dialogue is, of course, ADR once back in the States. Michael Winter apparently got some army friends together and had them record all these silly lines because if they were recorded in the set it would be like he's getting away get him governor Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that Bennett's out of the woods yet. I mean, he has bone fractures. We all know that they can unlodge and go into your heart. <laughs> but Stuart, come on. He's, what's the crazy thing is, he's in this hospital. I thought he's far away from where all this big fighting's going to go on at the end. Nope, he's like watching it from his window in the hospital. <laughs> he can see things blowing up. Like he's right there. And he is set off because they burned down his place of business. He can't fix any taxi meters now. But Schreiker has decided he's had enough justice. He wants to arrest Kersey now. Kersey's only able to escape because Bennett is injured and says he'll only identify his attackers to Paul. Listen, you know who they are. It's Alex Winter and his friends. Go get them. My challenge to any screenwriters out there is can you show me a relationship where the captain, the the police inspector, actually is not a guy screaming at the underlings and they resent and hate him? I mean, I just feel like this is the cliche of all cliches, that he's always got to be heckling Paul so that he could then turn and and have them team up at the end, I guess, is what they're trying to show here. But yeah, this is a conflict that's not even working. Honestly, I don't think you needed to have the cops do this. Take the cops out of this and Paul comes home and sees Charlie is dead and decides to clean up, move in. I mean, you didn't need this cop storyline at all. Yeah, but then I feel like, oh, now they got to repeat that whole thing with Frank Ochoa and he's trying to figure out what's going on. This cleans all that up. It's just the cops give him permission to kill. So now we don't have to worry about that cop subplot going on the whole time. I suppose you're right. I just, yeah, Frank Ochoa was more fun than this guy is. And boy, this ending. Yeah, the payback. (laughs) You know what? I remembered that it got really crazy. I forgot it got this crazy. You you forgot that you could send a rocket launcher in the mail? <laughs> I was thinking about that. I'm asked every time if I have any lithium ion batteries that I'm mailing, let alone, yes, are there any high powered explosives here? But somehow the gang members, yes, they did dial 1900 get a gang and <laughs> have them show up. But they're like, here, have a grenade and tossing it like it's tossing just a pen. Just to set the scene for those that haven't seen it, we have people on motorbikes blowing up entire buildings now. Things are coming down. Three-story buildings are just blown into yes. dust as these gangs come in to, I guess, the idea is just to annihilate every person living in the city block. I, I don't even know what Fracker and his gang want at this point, other than just total chaos and revenge. Yeah, I think that that's what they want is revenge, and that's why you have... Paul getting that other 30 caliber machine gun with Rodriguez like holding the ammo box as he goes down and just starts mowing gang members down. This is reminding me so much of Rambo First Blood Part 2 when Rambo just gets the machine gun and <laughs> ah and kills all the bad 
Vietnamese people. He does that also in in just Rambo, where he just literally just sits there on the back of a truck, just shooting people for what seems like 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. The late one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where you guys come down on it, but I've always thought that Rambo 2 was a horrible film, but it was a big hit. And I guess that Winner was a fan of it. Golan wanted to make that movie. So that's what they've turned Charles Bronson into. And it's not a good fit. This is not working for him. He is not anything like Sylvester Stallone. But isn't that the fun of this film is that it is Charles Bronson trying to be Sylvester Stallone? I don't know. I'm getting pleasure from that, that it is this almost 70-year-old man trying to run around with giant machine guns and Rodriguez with, I don't know what that thing is. It's like a couple of pipes, but he's made a shotgun out of it. He called it a zip gun, and I think it just holds one bullet. And I had a pop gun like this when I was a kid that you could, you know, shoot cork out of and so i think it was just like that i kept waiting because if it had more than one round in it i was gonna cry bullshit but the way it worked i guess the one shot was enough and if you're standing next to a man with a machine gun it doesn't really matter that man with the machine gun's gonna take everything out it reminded me of those video games that you play that are just a gun and it like moves you into a room and you have to shoot everything that's how Paul was when he had this machine gun and flipping cars over and they're, of course, blowing up. <laughs> there is a Death Wish 3 video game that I did play. I, I'm into emulators and retro gaming and it was like an old, I think, Commodore game. Commodore 64. Yeah, I looked this thing up. Yes. I mean, and all you do is walk around and shoot bad guys. I guess the innovative thing about it was depending on what kind of weapon you had people died different ways like you could blow them away with like a rocket launcher and they turn into a pulpy mass of flesh <laughs> or you just shoot them and they kind of just fall over and you do have to protect citizens so uh, but it just goes on forever kind of like the ending here you just shoot people i don't think there's any like levels or bosses or anything no it was strangely like the atari game of superman do you remember this yeah oh yes you had to catch the bad guys and avoid Lois Lane kissing you. And in this one, there's hookers. And surprisingly, you're not supposed to shoot them. It's, I guess, a precursor to Grand Theft Auto. And Yeah, Grand Theft Auto is when you start shooting them. Yeah, they up the, the stakes here. But it feels like an early version of that. And the graphics aren't bad. No, and a better soundtrack than this movie. Yeah, it was. It, it looked comparable to a Nintendo 8-bit game. That sounds kind of fun. I've also got emulators here, and plus I have an old Atari box hooked up to a television. I should give that a shot. It might be more fun than the ending of this movie, but I'm back in Police Academy. Now I'm thinking about Citizens on Patrol when all the old people are... <laughs> no, this is AARP on Patrol. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is terrible. Like the whole point of like going crazy like this is to save the neighborhood, right? Not like decimate it. All these people die. We had a shop owner and his wife gets her throat slit. The nice Jewish couple like not only ends up on fire running out of their building, but Fracker is there with his Uzi to mow them down. And we're going to watch that here. This is rubble. Congratulations, people. You have smoldering rocks at the end of this. You protected <laughs> your smoldering rocks from this gang. I couldn't tell. I was so distracted because the woman running out looks like she has Lego hair or something. She reminds me of those, like the Energizer people with the plastic hair so it didn't catch fire. I couldn't tell who the hell that stunt person was supposed to be. I get that they wanted to have a war film, and specifically a Vietnam revivalist war film like Rambo, but to destroy the neighborhood, to act like this was suddenly Dunkirk, is bizarre. <laughs> Well, that is part of the ironic charm for me is that it is so over the top. And yeah, this feels like something I would have written when I was 12. And I don't know. There, there's a certain charm to that. But yeah, they have saved this 
part of New York so they could rebuild some buildings because everyone's dead. I mean, at this point, as the town is burning, I, th- I think what the real joy for me is Schreiker shows up and it becomes like a buddy war film. Like they are going to go shoulder to shoulder, back to back, shooting gang members down. I have a feeling Ed Lauder's direction was make Bronson look good because Lauder's running around and it's almost like he's in a musical or something, the way he's posing with his gun and just shooting really crazily. I'm like, at least with Bronson, I believe he's been to a target range. I believe he has handled real firearms. The way Lauder's going, I think he might have handled a squirt gun. (laughs) Yeah, it's over the top. But then again, look at this movie. He's he fits right in here. And that we we have the assistance. Rodriguez is here too. They're helping this senior citizen Charles Bronson a lot too. I feel like in several cases somebody is appearing and about to shoot him. Yeah, Rodriguez saves him. Schreiker's gonna save him. I think that's how we lose Bill from Bill and Ted. Alex Winter is about to get him, and yeah, Schreiker comes in and saves the day. I feel like Alex Winter should have had a bigger part as he was one of the trio of main bad guys. He kind of disappeared for a while, and when he showed up, I'm like, oh yeah, he's not dead. This was partially his own choice. He was supposed to be one of the rapists, and he didn't want to do that to his career, so he let somebody else do that. So when he shows up again, it was like a, oh yeah, they forgot to kill you. Yeah, and I think we pay attention to him because he's a face we'll soon know from something else. And that's kind of the joy, right, of of Death Wish is that each time one of the muggers is somebody. It's Goldblum, it's Lawrence Fishburne, Alex Winter. Who will it be next week? I hope the trend continues. Yeah, I don't know if it will. We may be very disappointed, but I do like both him and Marina Sirtis in this was kind of a fun thing to see as I'd be watching a lot of them just a couple years later. All right, can we get to the craziest part? Paul has to go back to reload his gun. He has not been hurt at all. Well, he's got a bulletproof jacket. He got stabbed at one point, but I guess it didn't penetrate. The bad guys have machine guns too. They don't have like the chain-loaded ones. But bulletproof jackets stop everything, Arnie. I knew that when I was 12. That's how I would have written this as well. You know what I would have thought is there's a scene where he's standing against a brick wall and they're shooting at him with automatic weaponry. Even if they miss every shot, wouldn't some brick flying off the wall, like, nick his face? You're asking the wrong questions for this film. (laughs) (laughs) I just want some blood on Bronson. You can't just walk out of this unscathed. It's like UHF at this point. Well, and I think... It's also, it's inhuman. It's like, well, now he no longer has any humanity at all. His his lover can blow up in a car and just nothing gets to the guy. He's just no fun to watch as a vigilante. And that's the real mistake here. Again, I don't think that's a problem for this film. That was a problem last film as well. I think it was worse last film because it's a lot of him walking around. At least this one's moving. It's giving me action. Yeah, I guess. We get the showdown. We knew it needed to happen in this apartment where he's reloading. And Shriker's gonna shoot Fracker, this once again saving Paul's day, or so we think. Yeah, here's the thing. Fracker has a bulletproof vest, but he don't have a rocket-proof vest. <laughs> we found out earlier that that rocket-propelled grenade launcher was also armor-piercing, as if the explosion enough wouldn't do it. Does it need to be armor-piercing? <laughs> I don't know of any bulletproof jackets that stop rockets. 
Yeah, I'm sure Bronson has one in the closet somewhere. You know, I would like to wonder if Paul Kiersey is listening to this podcast, but he's probably not listening to anything ever again, because if shooting just a regular handgun in a shooting range is enough to cause hearing loss, being eight feet away from this explosion, you will never speak or hear again. I, th- I thought, honestly, that this was like just a complete kamikaze ending and Shriker, Kiersey, and Fracker all died together. <laughs> well, that is one of the things with canon films that I got from the documentary is that they would find like buildings that were going to get demolished and torn down. So they could really just blow them up. And so I guess this block in London was going to get torn down anyway. Cause yeah, they take out the side of that building with explosives. I'm telling you, they've saved nothing. They've not helped one person retain their home. Maybe some <laughs> survivors are here, but where they're going to live next. They could build some hip lofts now and gentrify the area. <laughs> make it too expensive for the gangs. Well, they did do that in New York. But what, what's so funny is like this rocket launcher goes off. And like the gangs are just like, well, we better leave. A rocket launcher went off. Like that solves everything. I wouldn't blame them. I'd be out of there too. I mean, I just don't know how they all know that a rocket launcher was just shot. It could have been someone's gas oven just exploded or something. Listen, I hear a gunshot a few blocks away. That thing had to resonate through the burrow. This is a war going on though. <laughs> I think most of these Keystone Hells Angels have been put down. You know, that the battle had already mostly been won already. There were a few stragglers that, yeah, the old people were, you know, beating with brooms. And actually, one woman did have a shotgun. I don't know how she got that in London, but we're supposed to think it's New York. Yes, and in New York, everyone had one of those. So I think that the true victory here isn't that the gang was even put down, but that the neighborhood survivors were taught they could defend themselves. They can band together. They don't need Paul anymore because they're going to protect their own land from whatever is remaining. It's a very Wild West kind of vibe. Yeah, Paul leaves. He's off to like St. Louis or Vegas. Who knows where to kill some people? Or are they going back to Brian Garfield's original text with that Death Wish sequel he wrote? The point was that when other people try to emulate a vigilante, it ends up going bad. I... Again, it's hard for me to see this as a victory. Paul came in and destroyed their lives. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Death Wish 3? Jacob. Is this a good action film? Uh, not really. I wish it was a lot more bloodier, a lot more gorier. Like, I really thought that would come along with it being a canon picture is we get a lot more squibs. And I think that was my biggest disappointment here. But look, this was a hoot. I had a fun time watching this film. I was laughing. I was giggling. I, you call me the giggler. I will giggle as I watch Death Wish 3 because it is so over the top. It is such a cartoon. It's literally like Rambo meets the AARP, which I guess that was that fourth Rambo film. But the, the fact that it's all old people, it's just it's anything that your intuition would say you do with an action film. This does almost the opposite of that. And so, look, I had a fun time. Brown Arrow, Green Arrow. I don't know, but it's a recommend. Stuart. Yeah, so many ways to talk about Death Wish 3, right? I'll start with the obvious. This is clearly a terrible continuation of the ideas put forth by Death Wish. This is not where this series should have gone. It's even more depraved than Death Wish 2. It's also terribly made. It's just terribly edited, flat acting, erratic tone, which, yeah, maybe that it's an endorsable comedy for that reason. I doubt that there's going to be a funnier installment in this series. Honestly, I laughed at this movie. You steal a car stereo, you get a rocket launcher. <laughs> what Red Dawn was to the Cold War, this is the gang violence. For some people, this is a brown arrow. Now, I think 
of all the now playing hosts, I'm probably the one least in love with Gonzo action movies. We live in a era where it's very rude. I think that in more polite times, bad taste, extreme violence can shake you up. I needed Winter to be a satirist. You know what I mean? If he had done what Paul Vorhoven did in Robocop or Starship Troopers, if over the top was part of his sensibility about saying what society was doing, I'd be more comfortable saying, yeah, this film is hilarious. See it. This movie is incompetent. I mean, it's hard for me to get on board with that. The reason why I'm going to give it the brown arrow, the reason why I can endorse it is because I saw that documentary that Arnie talked about, Electric Boogaloo. Because once you realize who Golem and Globus were and you see their repertoire, yeah, Death Wish 3 just looks like an Ed Wood movie. And there's just something kind of sweet about people with no talent trying to make it work. People that never should have taken this property, how they got it, it's ridiculous. But they had $10 million and they made this. And it is like watching 12-year-olds, you know, destroy their town. My parents have some Betamax tapes where we made movies like this at 10, 11, or 12. I mean, that, yeah, that is the appeal to me, that it is such a juvenile film and takes me back to just that mentality where, like, I want to make movies. I don't know how, but I want people to die, and I want shooting in them. Yeah, I agree. It is the best home movie I've ever seen, but it's a terrible movie. Yeah, I have to agree that this is a terrible movie. I don't even find that... It has some of the fun of the previous one because the previous one made me hate those villains so much and there was such a finite group of them. You know, it was pick off these five guys. And so I could go with that movie as it went after those guys. Here, the gang is never ending. I don't get the fun of seeing them blown away because most of the kills are people we're seeing for the very first time. It's just very strange in that regard that it starts with just these three gang members and by the end, it becomes this parade of extras who come on screen for a few seconds to pull a trigger and then fall over fake dead. And they're mannequins. (laughs) (laughs) Some do fall off surfaces, yes. But this is what I was expecting Death Wish to be. I had never seen a Death Wish movie But I remembered the trailers for 3, 4, and 5 from the 80s and 90s. And so this is what I was expecting. I kind of knew the first one being so early would be something different. I kind of thought Rambo, Rocky, it would be its own dramatic thing. But this is where I knew it was going. It's really poorly acted. It's poorly paced. Its action isn't even all that adrenalizing. Can I give it a brown arrow? Come on, you gave Paul walking around Skid Row for most of the film a brown arrow. This thing is way better paced than that. Yeah, I I agree. I'm going to be shocked if you say the movie last time was funny and this one wasn't. I laughed more last week. I can't believe that. Well, you were with me when I watched the second one and I was giggling like the giggler. And this time I was pretty stone-faced. It's right there on the line. I'm just going to eke it over to brown arrow territory. It is some fun there is some fun to be had but it was really i had to watch it twice and the second time i'm like am i enjoying it and i kept wanting to multitask i kept wanting to do something else it really i had a hard time keeping my attention for it but it is kind of gonzo and if you enjoy this kind of action i can just eke it over into giving it that greenish brown arrow Wow, I did not think that you would struggle to embrace something that's very gonzo. I mean, it's not kind of gonzo. This movie (laughs) is 
<laughs> I mean, it starts off crazy, and then, yeah, the ending is just unbelievable. It is, and yet I was shocked by the bloodlessness of it all. There's a lot of people standing there with pretty stoic faces pulling triggers, and there's people falling over, but... It's in the early kills where we actually get to see the holes blown through people's chests and things. I guess I want a little more trauma type stuff in this. I wanted this movie got an X and had to appeal to an R. I don't see how unless they were just offended by the noise of the gunfire. I mean, I think that this movie is plenty violent. I think it's plenty damaging to young, impressionable minds. I was damaged by it when I saw it on cable. I saw Death Wish 4 too, but I can't remember a thing about it. I do know we're going to get a new director, and it's going to be in a new direction. I think it's a hard act to follow up. After you go this crazy and this big, how do you make a Death Wish 4? It's an interesting proposition. But it is a candid film, right? It is. All the rest will be. And here's what I remember about this one very seriously, is I knew it was the crackdown because there's people on crack. Ah, okay. <laughs> So it's Death Wish for the crackdown. Oh, I see. The, the clever wordplay. Minahem, you're getting better at this writing thing. <laughs> that's all I know. And that's from when it was released because crack was big in the news in the late 80s. You know, that new crack cocaine that was so in vogue back then. So <laughs> that's all I know going in. I don't even know if what city we're in, but we'll find out. And I guess no Death Wish reboot. That's been pushed to March. <laughs> Says the scheduler. We are still going to continue. Now, we are not going to do Death Wish 4 next week, but that has less to do with the fact that, yes, they move the end game to next year, and more to do with the fact that there's horror to cover. Leatherface is back, and we want to get that show out before Halloween, so Arnie, Brock, and I are coming back to a series that we haven't seen in a couple years to talk about the new direct TV movie? <laughs> That's a new one for me, too. <laughs> I mean, I got to get a dish on my house in order to review this thing yes that's not what i did but do, do what you can and join us next week when we talk about leatherface and then we have a few other pickups to do arnie you marjorie and jacob are going back to see some more traps from jigsaw oh man it seems like that was so long ago that's coming back i guess i have been re-watching all the saw films in preparation and i have tickets it's coming out in imax i have imax opening <laughs> night tickets to get cut up with the jigsaw. And then everyone's least favorite leg of the Marvel Universe, Thor. Except this one actually looks good. Yeah. I'm excited for this one for once. Yeah, so it's going to be three weeks of other shows before we get to Death Wish 4, but we are going to continue to do this series through 2017. We're going to do Death Wish 4, 5, and that Kevin Bacon pseudo-sequel, Death Sentence. And then, yes, in March... I believe it's the first week in March. Bruce Willis will be back as the new Kiersey and will review Death Wish 2018 then. That was the weirdest change I've ever had to make to our website is change the year of a film. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for your patience. We're looking forward, though, to the next three films. Honestly, I'm good with putting Death Wish on hold. I've enjoyed some of the action and the violence, but come on. It is almost Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. It is almost Halloween. Let's review horror. 
This Friday, we get to finish the series. Phantasm Ravager brings to a close the five-picture Phantasm series. And I just want to put it out here. We're only doing Phantasm, I think, if you follow the butterfly effect here, we're only reviewing Phantasm because fans demanded it. They just said, we want to hear you guys talk about Phantasm. We really want Phantasm reviews. But they never said that before Ravager. So this movie we're reviewing this Friday is the inception of the entire retrospective series. I hope everyone who said they want to hear us review these is listening to these reviews. I hope you're getting what you want out of the reviews. I know I'm experiencing all these for the first time. I'm very anxious to see if Ravager is worth the rabid fandom it seemed to incite. Because, man, we heard about it for a year. Are you doing Phantasm? Are you doing Phantasm? We weren't going to. We legitimately weren't. Except we want to do what you guys want us to do. We eventually had heard it enough times that here it is. The completion of the Phantasm Retrospective. Yeah, it's a cult following that and none of us were members of that cult it's been kind of a journey of discovery i'd seen the first couple but one movie i did know and want to cover is also out if you've joined us month by month as a patron we have a new show out get out actually a big hit at the beginning of this year very topical i will just go ahead and say very great and i hope you can join us for that show I know it gets a little bit confusing, but here's how it's working. If you're a patron for $10 or more, you're getting all of our patron-exclusive shows and the Phantasm shows. But you can only get those shows through Podbean, and the Phantasm shows will only be available for the duration of the donation drive. When we move into our next donation drive, those won't be available. Or you can donate directly to us for $10 and get those five shows through the classic method where we email you the information to get those shows. And if you're a patron of $25 or more, or if you donate $25 or more to us, we're gonna see, well, I guess we don't see Barbie Wilde till Hellraiser 2, but next week, the Hellraiser (laughs) retrospective series begins, so. I can tell someone's excited about it. Hey, Barbie Wilde was a very nice woman when I met her last year. Okay, well, I don't know if she's going to be enough to give me many green arrows in that series. But yeah, long time coming. Hellraiser, God knows, it is really the last piece of the puzzle when we talk about classic slasher horror franchises. This is it. We've reached it. So that starts next week. So I, if you have any questions about the patrons versus the donations, we tried to spell it out on the website. I get that it can be a little confusing since it's a new thing for us. Come to the forums, come to Facebook, ask your questions. I'm more than happy to explain it all. Plus, if you were a donor previously for Child's Play, or if you're a playing level donor, you're also going to get Cult of Chucky before we come back for Death Wish 4. So a lot of horror podcasts in these weeks as we lead up to Halloween. And thank you, everyone who has supported our show. And Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me for this third Death Wish. And until next week... Your death wish has been granted. Oh, I'll be back soon. It's not necessary. It is for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If they hadn't broken us up, I would have killed you. Next time, you won't even see me coming. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Are you getting the most out of life? 
Are you satisfied, fulfilled, happy? For more movie review podcasts, visit the nowplayingpodcast.com archives. <laughs> oh, what a bummer, man. That was the worst fucking movie I've ever seen. There you'll find hundreds of film reviews, including Die Hard, John Wick, the Jason Bourne series, Kingsman, Machete, the Marvel Comics movies, and more. And come back each week for another new movie review. Hope you guys have a good time tonight. Enjoy yourselves, huh? You know where to come back to if you want some more. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. I ain't known for my community spirit. Show me some money. Available there are series like The Matrix, The Quentin Tarantino Films, Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Aliens, and much more. Give me the money, homeboy. <laughs> Give me the money now. Collection time, Charlie. Collection time. Links to our Podbean page are available from nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm going to beg you, son of a bitch. Please. Please. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Lego Batman, Get Out, Galaxy Quest, Hook, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. My heart bleeds a little for the underprivileged, yeah. Stick them in concentration camps, that's what I say. We want to especially thank our Podbean donors of $50 or more, Joseph Black, Jacob Parkins, Anders Marath, and David Billington. Well, that makes you a preferred customer. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. You're a writer. Write about it. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The links to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. Might amuse you, though. Being from New York, maybe you've never seen a club like this. You can also follow Now Playing on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests where you can win movies and soundtracks. Please all please. Be civilized for once before I kill somebody. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm so glad you wanted to come along. The more people that understand our work, the better. Now Playing's Death Wish series is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're tough. Yeah, you really are. Just a matter of keeping busy, Sam. Now Playing's Death Wish series is edited by Heath and Arnie. Guard said you were here after midnight last night. Yeah, that's the way I work. Now Playing's Death Wish series credits announced by Brock. I underestimated O'Shea. It's not going to happen again. The Death Wish films, all audio clips and music used, are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known Death Wish films or novels. 
Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that film or book series. You're not thinking of going back to your old ways, are you? Is that such a bad idea? Let the cops take these guys down. You know, sometimes the law works. And sometimes it doesn't. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Some people would say that was an extreme position. I don't care. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Whatever you little fucks think is important, ain't important. So stop! Stop it right now! Goodbye. And by day, he has a couple dates with public attorney Carolyn Davis, played by Deborah Raffin. Poor girl. (laughs) (laughs) You're 64, and I can't understand why I'm getting in bed with you, but that happens twice. Yeah, you mean Bronson's 64. I'm like, she's 64? She looks good for her age. Watching these gangs where where they're like doing face paint on their heads and when we get to Fracker... Is it Fracker or Fraker? Fracker. Fracker? Fracker, like like the mining operation. And it's Platinum Headphones time for Gavin O'Hurley. He... Yeah, <laughs> he was Brad, the jerky guy in Superman three, who was hitting on Annette Benning. Huh? What are you talking about? Annette Benning? Not Annette Benning. What's her name? The new girl. He was the security guard that got drunk. Right, but he was hitting on the Lana Lane. Yeah, I don't know who her name is. She's a major actress. No, she was on Smallville. Annette O'Toole. Okay, yeah. <laughs> All of that incidental dialogue is, of course, ADR. Once back in the States, Michael Winter apparently got some army friends together and had them record all these silly lines, because if they were recorded in the set, it would be like, he's getting away! Get him, governor! (laughs) That's my best British accent. That's sad. Well, now you've upset some people, but... (laughs) (laughs) Governor, I think you could work on that. Henry Iggins. We get the showdown. We knew it needed to happen in this apartment where he's reloading. Yeah, and Schreiker saves the day. He shoots Fraker, not Paul, at first, at least. Fraker. You said Fraker, Jacob. Oh, Fracker. Schreiker shoots. And Fuck these names. Schreiker. Boy, this gets harder. Schreiker. It's Schreiker, right? Okay. Schreiker and Fraker. And And Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me for this third Death Wish. And until next week... I'm going to go get some ice cream. <laughs> happy, happy Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Change my song. I can't boop boop to that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the tempo's all wrong. Um, boop, boop, boop. I'll, I'll yeah, you, 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 you set the beat. <laughs> that is as much a tradition on the show as anything else as Stuart doing the the beatbox for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if he ever refuses, I'll just go back to the archives and pull it out. <laughs> I'm getting older. I can't boop boop the way I used to. <laughs>